have an anchor that keeps the soul. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. And there are some identifying marks or maybe trademarks of what it means to be a Christian. And I would hope that as we live in this community and as we go about our daily business, that people see Christ living in us. Now, I understand that we're not perfect. There are many times in life when we fall short and we don't meet our own standard, much less the standard that God has set forth in Scripture. But the goal, of course, is to live a Christ-like life. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us some insight into what it means to live the Christian life. And I really think as you look at this passage, and I would encourage you this week, go back and reread Philippians chapter 2, particularly look at verses 5 through 11. As Paul talks about Christ and what Christ has done on our behalf. Because I think when you look at these verses and as you examine the scripture, one of the things that stands out, at least in my mind, is that Jesus provides us with a template for how to live as one of his disciples. Matter of fact, Jesus is, as sometimes we say in life, he is the gold standard. He is the standard by which we measure everything. So I want to give you four trademarks, if you please, of Christianity. The first, Paul emphasizes the importance of solidarity in the Christian life. So with that in mind, note again the passage that James read a moment ago. Paul said, therefore, if there is any encouragement, some translations may say consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. As I look at this verse, I'm reminded of the fact that God has always wanted His people to be united, hasn't He? God has always desired that there be a sense of unity or harmony among His people. And I think Jesus set the great example of that. Matter of fact, if you go back and read the book of John, for example, Jesus had numerous discussions with the Jews of His day. And they didn't understand that He was indeed the Son of God, that He was God in the flesh. And so oftentimes they tried to separate Him from the Father, so to speak. And what Jesus tried to say to the Jews of His day is that He and the Father worked in tandem with one another. In other words, their works were in concert with one another. They were in complete harmony with one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say on one occasion, I and the Father are one. There was this sense of oneness that pervaded their work in the redemptive plan. As we've said before, God the Father was the architect of that plan. Jesus was the agent by which that plan was consummated. And so Jesus willingly came to earth so that He might fulfill the will of His Father. But note again what Paul says in chapter 2. Paul talks about being like-minded 
of the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now over in chapter 4, Paul makes mention of two sisters in Christ, a lady by the name of Euodia and another by the name of Syntyche. And he said in verse 2 of chapter 4, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche. Listen to him. To be of the same mind in the Lord. I would take that to mean that at some point in time, these two ladies were not necessarily on the same page. Apparently there was some type of conflict between them. Now you know there are a lot of folks in the world today when they look at the church, they often try to cite hypocrisy as a crutch for why they don't want to become a Christian. I think one of the things that maybe people outside the church fail to understand, and even some within the church, is that the church is comprised of people. And people are imperfect beings, aren't we? You know, when you look at the church, it's comprised of a divine side and a human side. The divine side is absolutely flawless, impeccable. It is perfect. But then the other side of the ledger, the church being comprised of people, well, we're imperfect. We're, we have flaws. And there are times in life when we don't necessarily demonstrate the characteristics that are set forth in Scripture. Doesn't mean that we're not trying to live a Christian life. It simply means that sometimes we fall below the standard, don't we? Sometimes we don't live up to the divine ideal. And you remember a couple of weeks ago in our lesson when we looked at 1 John. And we talked about what it meant to walk in the light. And you remember John talks about those who claim to walk in the light, but he said they walk in darkness. And he said they lie and do not the truth. But he said if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. To walk in the light simply means to walk in harmony with God's Word. I'm trying to live to the best of my ability according to Scripture. Now there are times in life when I, like maybe many of you, feel as if I come woefully short of that standard. But you remember what John said in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things are right to you that you sin not. But he said, if any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here we are as members of the body of Christ. And there are times in life when, as Paul suggests here, these two ladies in Christ, Euodia and Syntyche, for whatever reason, they're not on the same page. There's a conflict, and Paul's desire is that they come together and be united, that they work out their problems. Well, Sometimes things happen like that in Christ, don't they? And yet, as I said a moment ago, there are times when maybe we don't live up to that divine ideal, but what the Lord's saying to us, what John's saying in 1 John chapter 2, when we fall short, we have an advocate. That's Jesus, the Son of God. And the picture is that of an attorney who is pleading our case before the bar of heaven. And so, as you think about the fact that we are, that we are imperfect people, Remember the saints in Corinth? I think it's interesting when you look at the church in Corinth, they were dividing up into what we might call sectarian groups. Some were saying that they were of Paul, some of Cephas, 
some of Apollos, some of Christ. And Paul said, look, there shouldn't be any division among us. We ought to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then you go through the book of Corinthians. And didn't they have a lot of trouble? They were carnal. They were divisive. They were puffed up, or as we might say, arrogant. There was immorality in their midst, according to chapter 5. They were suing one another, taking one another to the courts. I mean, they had problem after problem after problem. Over in chapter 11, they had problems abusing the Lord's Supper. And yet when Paul wrote to those people in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he wrote to people, and listen to what he said, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who are called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. What do you think Paul's saying there? I think he's saying that despite our flaws and imperfections, we're still a part of the body of Christ. We're still saints of God. We have still been sanctified, set apart, and God can use us. And so as I look at these first few verses, I'm reminded of our frailties, our imperfections, the fact that sometimes maybe we don't always carry ourselves as we should, that maybe there are times when we're not on the same platform or plane, so to speak. And when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he made a similar case over in chapter 4 of that book. And he talked about how they needed to demonstrate characteristics like humility and meekness or gentleness. That they needed to be long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then listen to this in verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what Paul's saying there? It takes work to live the Christian life, to be a child of God, and to be at peace with one another. And so again, you go back and you look at the church. We're, we, we are a part of a body that is composed of people. And we're not perfect. And there are times when maybe we're, maybe we're not what we ought to be. But we are trying to be the best we can be as I've said before, and I want to just re-emphasize, we are really works in progress, aren't we? Are you where you want to be spiritually? There are times when I look at my life, as I'm sure you evaluate your own life, and I see that there are things that I need to do to improve, to do better. Now, again, there's a lot to be said for effort and trying to do our best. And that's all God asks of any of us, isn't it? To simply do our best to walk in the light. And so, in looking at verses 1 through 3, I'm reminded of the fact that the church is comprised of people, and the goal is solidarity, to be on the same page, to be people who work together for a common good, for a common goal. When you look at chapter 2, Paul makes mention of some individuals who are companions of his, laborers in the gospel. He mentions by name Timothy, and Timothy, as you well know, was his son in the gospel. Then you have another fellow by the name of Epaphroditus. These two individuals demonstrated 
some tremendous qualities that all of us would appreciate and want to be a part of our own lives. Well, where did they learn that? Where did the Apostle Paul learn to become the person that he was? By looking at Jesus. By looking at the life of Jesus. So with that in mind, I want you to look with me now in verse 5. Listen now to what Paul said. There is a second attribute that I want to share with you. And that is the Apostle Paul stresses the importance of selflessness. Now, I said verse 5, pick up in verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And you remember I mentioned just a moment ago Timothy. And listen to what he says about Timothy in chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now listen to this. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. Is it possible that Paul is saying, you know what, maybe you're not where you need to be. Timothy's a great example of someone who is demonstrating a selfless life. Well, where did they learn that? Look at verse 5. Paul said, let this mind or have this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so now he's going to talk about the mind of Christ and the various characteristics or attributes demonstrated by Jesus in coming to fulfill the will of the Father. And so he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Some translations might say he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now, I want to just be very honest with you. I'm not sure that I fully grasp all that's involved in Jesus emptying himself or divesting himself of certain divine prerogatives in coming to earth. I do know that when he left earth, he left behind the glory that he had enjoyed with the Father from time before time eternal. There was a sense of glory that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. He was on a plane equal to the Father. That never diminished. But he was willing to put the interest of others before himself. He was, as we would say, selfless. Now, you remember what Paul said over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You have heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we might become rich through his poverty. Jesus left the glory of heaven, took upon himself, as Paul said, human flesh. And here is the one who literally created the world. Ultimately, he would be crucified by his own creation. But he emptied himself, leaving, as I said a moment ago, the glories of heaven. And so he teaches us something about living a selfless life. Understanding that as a child of God, it's not always about me. 
but rather it's about other people. And Jesus, no doubt, demonstrated that in going to the cross, didn't He? I mean, sometimes we talk about the cross, personally speaking. He went to the cross for all of us, individually speaking. Jesus paid the price for our sins. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? That Christ loved me, gave Himself for me? That is personal and profound. It ought to be moving to us to think that the second member of the Godhead was willing to come to earth and die on our behalf. I said a minute ago that Jesus emptied Himself of certain divine prerogatives. Now there are earmarks of deity, aren't there? For example, God is omniscient. That is, He's all-knowing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent. That is, He is ever-present. Nowhere you can go and escape the presence of God. Well, obviously, when Jesus came to earth and tabernacled in human flesh, He divested Himself of that omnipresence for a limited period of time, didn't He? So that having been said, we talk about solidarity among believers, selflessness among believers. Now, note if you would the continuation. Paul now speaks, he said, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. So Jesus came to earth to serve, to be a servant. It's interesting to me that when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he often identifies himself, or he does identify himself, as a servant of Jesus Christ. It's not mandatory servanthood, but rather it is servanthood that is taken on by choice. Paul made the choice to become a Christian, didn't he? He made the choice to serve the Lord. And you think about all that was involved in that. Look over in chapter 3 for a minute. In chapter 3, Paul gives his, what we might say, spiritual pedigree. In verse 5, he said he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, he said a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But now listen to him. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Now let me just maybe pause here for a moment or two. Paul was, by all accounts, a Jewish scholar. Here was a man that sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And you know, when you read John chapter 3 about Nicodemus, Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, according to Jesus in John 3 and about verse 10. Nicodemus was a man of clout. Someone that would have been highly respected. Saul of Tarsus would have been cut from the same cloth. I mean, this guy was something. And he sets forth his pedigree here. Here was a guy that had the credentials that no doubt would have been an envy to many people in the Jewish community. And yet Paul is saying, look, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul walked away from being, as we might say, something in the world to become a servant of the Lord. That clout, 
that he enjoyed as a Pharisee and all of the pomp and adulation that went along with that, he willingly gave that up, laid it to the side for the purpose of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you begin reading, say, in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary endeavors, and you remember the church prayed and fasted for them as they began the task of reaching out to people who were lost and dying in sin. And as you make the travels with Paul, those three missionary endeavors, look at some of the things that he encountered along the way. All of that was born out of a love for the Lord and a desire to simply be a servant of the Lord. In chapter 15, it's noted by Luke that the church recognized Paul and Barnabas as men who hazarded their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were servants. Now, let me call attention to another thought here. Paul said that Christ took, him, took upon Himself the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, again, this has to do with His incarnate nature, the fact that He took upon Himself human flesh, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death. This isn't in the notes, but let me just very quickly point out there's an emphasis here on the importance of submission. Jesus has demonstrated submission to the Father in going to Calvary. And you remember, for example, Jesus said in John 6, verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father in heaven. Or in Hebrews chapter 5, where the Bible says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, and that is certainly reflected in Matthew 26, 36-46, when you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father repeatedly, Not my will, but your will be done. Subjugating His will to the will of the Father in heaven. And then note also, Paul said he became obedient to the point of death, yes, even the death of the cross, the importance of sacrifice. Jesus gave his all for us. And when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you could ask the question, what did he give for the cause? He gave all, didn't he? Pick up again in Philippians chapter 3. And listen to what Paul said in verse 8. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. In verse 17 of chapter 2, I want you to listen to what Paul says. Yes, and if I am being poured out 
as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Those Old Testament sacrifices often accompanied by a drink offering. And Paul is willing to spend and to be spent for the cause of Christ. He said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. He said, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So, Paul was a man of great sacrifice. And again, I think he learned that sacrificial attitude by looking at Jesus. There's some trademarks of Christianity that we want to incorporate into our life. To be the best that we can be in service to God. When I look at Philippians chapter 2, as I said a moment ago, I think this is one of the pinnacle chapters in all of Paul's writings. Because he says something about what Jesus gave up for us and what we can become through Him. Let me just close very quickly by noting with you verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We want to live a Christ-centered life. And in living a Christ-centered life, we want to be a shining light for good in a world that's sadly marred by sin. And so in writing to the saints in Philippi, Paul would write these words. Verse 14, Do all things without murmuring and disputing or complaining or grumbling. Again, we talk about that imperfect side of the church, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without faith, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, and I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Tonight as we close, I want to say this. It's a great blessing to be a Christian and to understand that when it's all said and done, we are all works in progress. We talk about the life of Paul, and Paul had his faults, as no doubt we all do. The beauty of Christianity is that God can use us no matter where we are in our life, in our journey of faith. And I remind you of the Apostle Peter. You know, when you look at the life of Peter, in John chapter 13, Jesus had been discussing the fact that he's going to be leaving them. He'd already made that very statement back in chapter 8. And so at the close of chapter 13, Paul, or rather Peter, says to the Lord, listen, if the need arise, I'm willing to die for you, for your cause. You remember Jesus told him that ultimately he would deny him. Well, Peter did deny him. And I can just imagine how badly Peter fell. Matter of fact, in John chapter 21, we read of him fishing back on the sea. And yet in that chapter, we have the Lord 
reappearing to the disciples, and specifically talking to Peter and asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, you know, Lord, you know I love you. He does that three times. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think what Jesus was saying to Peter was simply this. Peter, I can still use you. Even though you made a grave mistake, I can still use you. And Peter became a great, great ambassador for Christ. And so as we look at Philippians chapter 2 and we think about our imperfections and our goal to be Christ-like in everything that we say and do, to understand that God loves us, that God wants the best for us, and it begins by obeying His will, becoming one of His children, humbling ourselves to do as Saul of Tarsus did, to arise, be baptized, and wash away our sins, baptism being preceded by faith and repentance. And then let's just say that for whatever reason we do get off track. To me, the beauty of Christianity is there will never be a time in your life when God will not take you back with open arms. It's a wonderful thought. God will always take you back. And so let's just say you're like the prodigal and you're out here in the world to know that there's a God in heaven who still loves you, who's still willing to shower upon you His grace and mercy. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Listen to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.